Gas prices are a super hot topic at the moment because they've reached record highs. And one of the reasons they've reached record highs is that oil corporate profits are at a record high because these guys are just gouging people. Inflation isn't being born equally. It's not being born equally by the corporation of the worker. It's all falling on workers and the middle class. Inflation is a global phenomenon. Right. It's happening whether you did stimulus or whether you didn't. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. We get a lot of emails coming into the podcast and they are overwhelmingly positive. But uh, sometimes we get a few negative, even angry ones. Yeah. And, and one of the themes we've heard recently, Nick, is that we promised somehow, <laughs> I'll say you promised, since <laughs> your name is on this podcast, it's not just me, that we weren't going to get inflation. And yet uh, here we are. We have the first real inflation in maybe uh, 30, 40 years. Yeah, it, and that's probably a fair criticism, Goldie, to a certain extent, although I don't think we said that we were not going to get inflation. We said more precisely that the stimulus checks that went to middle class people was not going to cause inflation. Right. Uh, and I maintain that in the absence of the disruption of the global supply chains and the reverberating effects that that had throughout the economy, those stimulus checks would in fact not have created, if it had created inflation, it would have been half a percent or something like that. Certainly not right. the seven or 8% that we're currently experiencing. And I continue to maintain uh, that the vast majority of the inflation that American consumers are experiencing is a consequence of the disruption of global supply chains. And uh, among other things, the opening that that creates for corporations to increase profits too. And again, the increases in prices are not solely a product of, you know, effectively price gouging that's taking place, which is what these disruptions have enabled uh, you know, the corporate CEOs to to engage in. But it is part of it. And the other part of it is just the simple reality of supply and demand. And people, you know, if you desperately need a new car uh, because your old one is broken, you will pay a premium if there are very few available. And they're just right. less available because there are fewer parts available. And, and companies across the spectrum are having an incredibly difficult time sourcing these parts and getting their products made. And that is right. just a reality. And, and there's evidence, Nick, to support your assertion that we can't blame this on the stimulus. And yeah. that is we have going on what economists would call a real life difference in difference experiment. Not every country approached the, the pandemic with the same policies. Uh, the U.S. did a lot of stimulus checks. A lot of other countries did not. And yet inflation is a global phenomenon. Right. It's happening whether you did stimulus uh, or whether you didn't right. all around the country. 
maybe it's a half a point higher here uh, than it is in Europe, but uh, Europe is still seeing the same type of inflation we're seeing. Japan is seeing this type of inflation. Uh, I understand China is diff it's hard to trust any of the uh, economic figures coming out of right. China. But the, the real number that came out of China is how slow their growth is uh, compared to the where it's been in the past. And that is largely uh, where you see so much coming out of the Chinese economy. That's largely where the, the supply shock is coming. That's right. They create the parts that are slowing down manufacturing Correct. everywhere. So, you know, this is what happens when you turn off the economy and then you try turning it back on. You get a That's lot right. of supply chain disruptions. I would add that I've been pretty vocal about this. I'm not concerned about inflation long term. Uh, I think a, a lot of economists agree that what we're seeing is a short term shock. So it's, you know, having grown up in the 70s, I remember uh, when you had a, a decade of inflation. And this doesn't feel like that. And I don't no. think that's where we're heading. Yeah, I, I just want to make a couple of more points about inflation. The first, the other thing is, is that in a world where companies are not optimized around growth, they're not optimized around investment, what they're optimized around is near-term profits, then no company is operating with tons and tons of excess capacity, mm -hmm. right? And so when you have these shocks, there's not a lot of cushion available right. to deal with it. And so people have to scramble if demand goes up and down. And that is just all part of how we have managed the global economy, certainly the American economy over the last decades. And the other point I wanna make about inflation and the narratives around inflation is that if there is anything in the world you can depend on, it is the trickle downers. And that those are largely the folks whose job it is to defend the interests of the status quo and the wealthy is that they will turn anything good that happens for middle-class people into a negative, right? That's uh, right. It, so, it, so saying that stimulus creates inflation is the same as saying that raising wages kills jobs or that tax increases on the rich will destroy growth. It yes. is always the same story. Right, Anything, right. Well, Nick, it's even worse because yeah. it is so explicit. What they are literally saying is, yeah, giving people money just hurts the people you're trying to help. Yes, exactly. Right? Unless, right. unless it's the top 1%. In which you, case, it's an unalloyed good. Sending you good. money, it's great. Yeah, but exactly. But sending people checks is bad for them. Yes, literally. It's literally, literally what bad they, for them. Yeah. So, you know, by that logic, we shouldn't pay people anything. Because it's bad for them. Yeah, it'll just create inflation. Yeah, I mean, if, right. we, if we pay people money, they're just going to drive up demand for stuff and force prices up, and that's bad. That's so right. we shouldn't, we should, oh God, it is yeah. so crazy. Anyway, well, but we, but listen, <laughs> but, but we digressed because today we get to talk to a really interesting person and an old friend, Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, who represents uh, Silicon Valley of all places. And we're going to talk to him mostly about his big oil windfall profits tax because gas prices are a super hot topic at the moment because they've reached record highs. And one of the reasons they've reached record highs is that oil 
corporate profits are at a record high because these guys are just gouging people. And so he's going to talk to us about that. And he's also going to talk to us about his new book, which is super interesting, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. So with that, why don't we talk to Ro? I'm Ro Khanna. I uh, represent uh, Silicon Valley in the United States Congress. Been in Congress uh, about uh, six years now, and I have a new book, Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us. Congressman, w- welcome back to the show. Uh, it's super fun to catch up and see and hear about what your latest concerns and interests are. Uh, and I know that one of them is inflation. Uh, which is a very real challenge for uh, the majority of Americans. So let's talk about it from your perspective. What's causing it? Inflation, as I understand it, is too much money chasing too few goods. That's the standard definition. That means there are two things you can do to deal with inflation. You can either try to shrink the amount of money out there, or you can increase the denominator. You can increase the production Uh, My view is that the biggest thing we ought to be doing is increasing our production in this country. Uh, A lot of the uh, inflation was in part that we uh, offshored so much of the productive capacity. We really didn't think that we needed to be making things in this country. And if we have a massive focus on reindustrialization, on production over the long run, that is deflationary. Now, there are things we have to do in the short term in terms of making sure that Consumers are protected uh, from companies that have greater market power in an inflationary environment uh, so that they aren't fleecing consumers. But over the long run, I would say increased production. So, so this is a, you're looking at the current inflation, it's more of a supply side than a demand side issue right now. I'd say it's both, but it's certainly largely a, uh, a supply side because of the shocks of, of the pandemic and because of uh, us not producing what, what we are capable of producing in this country. We just let so much of our industrial capacity uh, atrophy. And then I think to the extent that it's demand side, it's in my view, it's not uh, the stimulus that went to working families and to the middle class or the COVID relief. And we can argue on uh, some of the Fed policies, which is largely the cause of, of the monetary supply and the inflation of the stock market. But I don't think you can attribute it uh, to uh, the American Rescue Plan, or even some of the CARES Act and some of the things we did under Trump. Yeah. And I think it's worth reminding folks that the definitive proof that it was not the actions of the Biden administration uh, supporting middle class families that created inflation is the fact that inflation is roughly the same in the entire advanced economy world, right? Like inflation in Europe is plus or minus the same as it is in the United States. You know, the Biden administration policies obviously had nothing to do with that. Absolutely. And look, the Biden administration, now, no policy is inflationary if it's paid for. And the people who've been opposed to paying for a lot of the policies are the Republicans. I mean, the right. Biden administration says, let's have the billionaire tax. Let's have higher taxes on corporations. So, you know, we're wanting to pay for things to the extent that there is uh, some form of deficit spending leading to the Fed buying treasury bonds. 
that is because the Republicans have been opposed to any of the increases of taxing the rich. Well, speaking of that, let's get into your windfall profits tax. So what is that and how would that work? It was done in uh, the late 1970s, early 1980s. It led actually to lower consumer prices and more production for the first few years. The idea is simple. You know, right now you got big oil. They're making billions of dollars. Uh, that money is not going to the, the workers. It's going it's not even going to, to the executives. In many cases, it's going to Wall Street that is demanding stock buybacks, that's demanding dividends, uh, and while the American people are being fleeced at the pump. Now, what, right. what does the tax do? It says, okay, if you're gonna charge more than 66 bucks a barrel, then you're gonna have to pay this windfall profit tax and we're gonna give that money right back to the American, uh, Americans who are paying for, for gas at the pump. And by the way, if you don't charge it, then uh, you don't have to pay this tax. Now, people say, okay, if the oil companies don't charge it to avoid the tax, won't some of the retailers still uh, be able to get some of the, the, the profit, the, the gas station uh, owners? And there are about 150,000 of them. And sure, not all of the savings will go to the consumers, but i rather that the savings go to the consumers and the 150,000 retailers than what's happening now, which is all of it going to big oil shareholders. Do you have any sense for how much in, in dollars, how much... Um the sort of windfall profits that not just big oil, but corporations across the spectrum are making, how that is contributing to inflation right now? I know for big oil, it's about uh, close to 50 billion. Uh, I I do not know what the number is nationwide for all industries. It's probably an astronomical sum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I mean, executives are- are boasting on their on their quarterly uh, calls about uh, how easy it is for them to uh, goose profits by uh, just raising prices right now. Yeah, I mean, there are two things that have happened. One is when you have market power and we have highly concentrated industries and you have an inflationary environment, you have the ability to raise prices. And no one, you know, people keep saying, oh, this is not correct economics, et cetera. No one is saying that the, the, the cause of inflation is just these corporations' actions. The cause of inflation may be that you have too much money chasing too few goods. But when you have that environment, corporations have a choice. And because of the concentration, they are increasing those prices on the consumer. And so the point is inflation isn't being borne equally. It's not being borne equally by the corporation or the worker. It's all falling on workers and the middle class because of the corporate behavior and consecration. So what else do you think can be done to hold oil companies and other big companies responsible for overcharging, you know, as you know, I'm a capitalist, so I'm somewhat sensitive to this, you know, like high margins is to a certain extent, your reward in many cases, or at least theoretically for making great products, right? That people cannot get it elsewhere. Right. Like, the, the, I mean, this is the goal of business is to make a product so good that no one else can make it and consumers will pay you a premium for it that, you know, rewards you for your innovation and your quality. So, uh, you know, I guess, how do you draw a distinction between that kind of behavior that we want to encourage and just this sort of opportunistic gouging that's taking place on commodities? 
Well, I think it's because this is driven by an external crisis and an external yeah. event. It's it, it's why we don't let people jack up the price for Uber rides if there's a uh, emergency in a city, uh, right. or why we don't say that if there's a storm that you know you can jack up the price for water. Well, you have here a, uh, a an event, the war uh, that caused by Putin, and you're saying to Americans, be patriotic for the cause of freedom. And, and the vast majority of Americans, Democrats and Republicans are saying, yes, we need to stand up for freedom. And but not the oil companies. But not the oil companies. <laughs> yeah, they're only standing up for themselves. <laughs> so that's the, you know, if the oil companies had come up with some invention and they had made oil, uh, you know, this great oil that maybe it makes their car go a thousand miles or something yeah, it, right. instead of uh, 300 miles on the tank. Uh, you know, we can debate on climate, et cetera, but then you can say, okay, they have an argument. They made a better product. They've had innovation. Yeah. Here, they're just benefiting from an external uh, event. And by the way, that, that's, I think, what offends Americans. You know, one of my great uh, thing, uh, the plays is Arthur Miller's All My Sons. All of My Sons. And basically, in that play, Arthur Miller shows how there's this business guy who's making money on the war while Americans are uh, sacrificing their lives in, in World War II. And it just offends people. And I yeah. think that's what's offensive here is that big oil is making money while uh, everyone else in America is willing to sacrifice to stand with the Ukrainians. Yeah. Do you have a, a plan specifically if we were to to do the windfall profits tax, what we would do with that revenue? Yeah, we go back to, to working class and middle class folks to ease some of the the, the burden at the pump. It, it turns out, uh, at, if, if it's around $100 a, a barrel of oil, uh, then it would be about $300 a, month, a quarter uh, for most working class families. And you do that as, uh, as a tax credit? Yeah, as a check, check straight, straight check, from the government. Just send a check. Okay, send a check, but but it's a check that is, uh, you know, that that is going to people who uh, need it, who are in the working and middle class. I think it's under one hundred and twenty-five thousand, as the bill is written. Well, that would make a big difference to a lot of people. It, it, it would. I mean, that's you know, the the won't cover all of the cost increase, but three hundred bucks over three months is significant, and that's a hundred yeah. bucks a month. That'll cover some of the. Because, you know, I, I think part of the disconnect is that we're just not out there enough. I was out in, uh, in, in, in grocery stores in my district and just at talking to folks. And this high school teacher comes up in Mountain View, and we have a very high cost of living area. So he's making a, a, a decent salary for a teacher. But he says, you know, Ro, I'm now only eating two eggs in the morning instead of three eggs uh, because of the cost of eggs. And so I think that the challenges that there are a lot of people, middle class, working class folks who are hurting uh, for who a couple hundred bucks a month would make a big, big difference. And where they're not being uh, prioritized. And yet big oil and these corporations are are doing terrific and making all these profits and justifying it as well. That's the market economy. Yeah, but the market economy isn't working for a lot of folks. Yeah. Which is the heart of why our politics are so polarized. Is, you know, democracy, honestly, has not delivered for most people. And it's pretty hard to to get around that. Yeah, that's a great, a great segue to get into talking a bit about your book, because uh, you look at the title Dignity in a Digital Age. It's um, a lot of it is about economics. A lot of it is about uh, politics, about democracy and how the two work together. If if you could just uh, 
summarize your goal in writing this book to start with, uh, I think uh, that'd be a great place to start. The goal was to say that there's something that is fundamentally amiss with globalization and the new economy. It's basically led to $11 trillion of piling up in my district of, of market cap. And at the same time, you've had millions of jobs uh, offshore. You've had deindustrialization. You've had communities totally left out and uh, no sense of economic prospects, not just for people in their 50s or 60s, but even for their kids, where communities are talking about a brain drain in the United States of America, having to have people leave. And you have the case of this extraordinary inequality with workers, where you could win the lottery, work for one of the wealthiest companies in the world, Amazon, and, and still have a life where you've got an algorithm as a boss and not making more than 15 bucks an hour, not the 30 bucks you used to make in a manufacturing job. And so how can there be uh, a dignity and pride in this new economy when so many people, communities, workers have been left out? And that's the central thesis of the book. And, you know, I propose some of the solutions that I have, but really it's to start a conversation to say, we need intentionality. We need state intervention. We can't just let the market continue to have the, the outcome that it's created. You know, one of the things I loved in the book was your use of the word freedom. Uh, you, you kind of excoriate your fellow Democrats on that. Uh, explain what you're, where you were going. Well, this is where I, I, I know we were talking beforehand about Amartya Sen, and this is uh, his central idea in his great book, uh, Development is Freedom. And the basic point is, what does it mean for a person to be free? It means that you can take risks, that you can live your dream, that you can do things uh, that you want to do. Well, that one of the causes that could restrict your freedom is if the government comes and puts you in jail or takes things from you. And obviously, we want to make sure we have rights per are, are protected. But I think a lot of people with the way they experience the loss of their freedom today uh, is not just fear that they're going to have the government show up at their door to take things from them. It's that they don't have health care. And so they can't change their job. They can't start a small business. They can't take care of uh, their kids. Uh, they don't have child care. So they don't have the opportunities that uh, they want in life. And a lot of uh, our policies, democratic policies, are actually enabling people to have the freedom to live the life they want. And we ought to talk about that. Uh, FDR certainly did in, in his great famous uh, second Bill of Rights speech. He said, we've got to have health care education so that people can be free in America to pursue their happiness. And, and like I said, you kind of excoriate your fellow Democrats for allowing Republicans to uh, own the word freedom. Yeah, because I think our, you know, we are such a, we're, we're a, a party that understands justice and empathy and compassion. And that is all important. And I think it strikes us, okay, all these, this money is piling up and in a few people's hands and, and, and uh, some people have been left out and it's not fair. And fairness is an important value. But all of our arguments are always on the axis of fairness. And there's another in whole dimension to it, which is actually our policies are what's going to unleash people's uh, freedom that's going to allow them to create things and build things and experiment and have happy family lives and build community. And we never talk about that. And uh, I, I think that we're just missing a whole dimension that can connect with people. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And Roa, you know, I so appreciate you drawing out the distinction between 
freedom from and freedom to, right? Uh, obviously, you know, there's this very narrow conception of freedom that the right pushes, which is freedom from constraint, uh, which largely ends up being handing the right to exploit other people to very powerful people. Yeah. <laughs> and th there's such an important distinction between that and giving people the capacity to do what they want or could be able to do. And, and that is what progressive economic policies do is they expand the capacity of people to, you know, do more, be more, realize more of their individual um, opportunities rather than being a friggin' wage slave to a giant corporation with no options. I think this explains in so much why there's a disconnect between sometimes entrepreneurs in the Valley or others thinking of themselves as self-made and others not thinking them, of themselves as self-made. On the one hand, they, they say, look, we're not Donald Trump. Like we haven't inherited millions of dollars. Uh, we kind of built these things. We worked really hard. We took risks. So yeah, there's this sense of being self-made. Some of them say we're immigrants. We came to this country with very little. But then I think when you peel back almost any successful story, you, even from immigrants, you'll see, well, they had this extraordinary education. Most of them didn't worry about healthcare when they were growing up. Most of them had all of the, the nutrition. And so it's just that we take some of those basic things. And, and if, I could, if I could just add, Ro, yeah. my experience is if you track it back to their parents, you know, these immigrant success stories were generational in the sense that yeah. their, par their parents were scientists or doctors or lawyers. Yeah, or right? at least middle class. <laughs> yeah, or yeah. At least middle class. And so I guess the point is just give everyone those the basics, right? I mean, that's basically yeah. what progressive economics is saying. Like everyone should have healthcare, everyone should have education, nutrition, the, the things that you said that, that make you capable of daring to take a risk. You know, the other thing, it's like, okay, if things didn't work out, if you take a risk, they don't work out. Well, you're not going to be homeless. You have other options when you have certain right. education or come from certain families. And I, I, I think that that is uh, the essence of what progressive economics is about, is giving everyone sort of those freedoms and that security. Yeah, no, I think you're right. So can we zero in on the theme of technology? Obviously, you know, one of the great challenges we face is the agglomeration effects that are going on in places like Silicon Valley and New York and Seattle and so on and so forth, right? That, that, you know, these companies that are producing most of the new innovation, most of the new GDP, you know, all that stuff tend to be concentrated in a few places. And for very good reason, which is by a factor of 10, the, the most important thing is accessing the talent pools that can make these things possible. And that is, virtually impossible for a small community, you know, you know, a, a small town of 3000 people to compete with, right? So what do we do to bring folks who don't live in Seattle or San Francisco along with the economy? So I'd say there are two things to this. One is that there are now going to be 25 million of these digital jobs. And that is not just jobs in working at Google or Apple or Amazon, but it is jobs in manufacturing. It's jobs in retail and agriculture. And almost the cliche, as you know, Nick, better than I, is every company almost has a technology aspect. 
And as the technology revolution has advanced, many of these jobs actually don't require complex coding or coding at all. And the new mantra in the Valley is low code, no code, which means it just means having some basic credential and technology proficiency, but not even a, a two-year or four-year degree. One of the, the programs I've championed, or actually we're working with Google to do is with community colleges is they pay, uh, it's a pilot program where they're going to pay a 5,000 buck stipend, 18-month course with HBCUs, community colleges, and then a person is going to have a $65,000, $70,000 job at the end of it, and they don't have to leave the community to do it. I I think we need to scale those type of programs in partnership with land-grant universities, with community colleges, so that we build this digital middle class. Then second is to your broader point, but what about things that require more education, more capital? Uh, I do think COVID provides an opportunity to rethink things as when I was advocating some form of decentralization in Silicon Valley, people thought I was crazy. I sent my book to uh, uh, one of my venture capitalist friends, he said, well, there's nothing new. We're, all, we're, we're doing all this uh, now post-COVID. And so it's gone from impossible yeah, to yeah, inevitable. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah I, I mean, for sure, the intersect, I mean, it was just an extraordinarily fortunate circumstance. The intersection of the COVID pandemic with the sort of breakthrough capacity of video conferencing to connect people through Zoom or Teams or whatever it is, really does open up new possibilities. Yeah, Assuming so these communities have uh, broadband, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. broadband. Yeah. It's on its way, thanks to President yeah. Biden. But I think it's all also how we talk about these jobs, because I think we mythologize them so much. I mean, I, yeah. I have such admiration that's for, for sure. President Obama, but I heard he did some interview. And it's like, well, you can't turn a, a, a factory worker into a coder. Well, of course you can, but we're not trying, that shouldn't be the, because people think, oh, these jobs, it's going to require math. It's going to try to, and this image of you're taking a factory worker, making I'm a coder. Part of what I try to do in this book, and I start with Alex Hughes, is He's manufacturing things. He, his job is actually making refrigerators, but he gets this six-month course uh, to do it uh, so that he, they're smart refrigerators. And you know what? It's better that he's doing that and that job is here than that job be offshore if he didn't have that credential. So I think we have to, to start to, to make these jobs far more accessible and approachable than currently are and relatable to jobs that people have done in the past. Yeah, that's super interesting. Can I just bring up one one final thing from the book? I'd, I'd like you just to talk very briefly because I know we've used a lot of your time. Your final chapter is titled Democratic Patriotism. Define that for us. Democratic patriotism is the view that it is perfectly fine to have an allegiance, an attachment uh, to a country, to not just a country's ideals, but a country's culture but that, that culture needs to be defined democratically and should be continually redefined over time as people uh, want it to be. Uh, you know, I quote W.B. Du Bois, who has this brilliant phrase. He says, we all need to be equals, equal co-workers in creating the kingdom of culture. But on a, on a less sort of philosophical note, I think what it, Democrats should not shy away from a patriotic story about this country. I mean, I... Of course, I'm the son of immigrants. I was born in Philadelphia in 1976, our bicentenary. And I think that we have to be proud of the American story of uh, becoming, in my view, the first truly multiracial, multi-ethnic democracy in the history of the world. 
doesn't mean we don't acknowledge the problems. Doesn't mean we don't acknowledge that there are uh, a lot of folks currently left out of an economy, but it should be with an aspiration that we want this country to succeed and, and we believe in this country's values and we believe fundamentally there it's a decent, good country. I just think that, that well, that's first true to what I actually believe. And I think it may help get our message across to people who may be skeptical uh, or unwilling to listen. Yeah, that's 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 great. So let's let's uh, finish with the, the benevolent dictator question, either about if inflation or big tech policy, your choice. If you were in charge and politics wasn't at play, what what would you do in your term? Here's what I would do. I, I worked to, to, to reindustrialize the country, but let me give you a very specific example because I was just there and I'll be brief. Galesburg, Illinois, Maytag factory left, 5,000 jobs left. They were making coincidentally refrigerators there. President Obama eloquently spoke about it in his 2004 keynote speech. I went there three weeks ago. They said, look, 20 years have gone. Our communities have totally not changed. It's just gotten worse. The economy has gotten worse our kids are leaving. You know what I would do? I would pick 20 of these communities across the country in west side of Chicago, black communities, white working class communities, have the president call up people like you and they call up CEOs, call up uh, educational institution leaders and say, we're actually going to just spend a couple of years revitalizing these communities. Bobby Kennedy tried that with Bedford-Stuyvesant in 1964 in Brooklyn, and it actually worked quite well. But I, I think one of the reasons we're not heard is they hear me on TV say build back better, infrastructure, et cetera, but their lived experience is this is not helping our lives. And we've got to somehow actually start creating economic opportunity in these places. That's fantastic. Well, Ro, thank you again for being with us and um, for the work you do and uh, best of luck in your endeavors. Thank you, Nick. Thank you for the work you do. You're a very important voice. And thanks for writing this book. Thank you, Goldie. Well, Goldie, that was a super interesting conversation, as always, with Ro. He's so smart and uh, such a great guy. And I particularly appreciate the conversation we had about the distinction between two kinds of freedom, uh -huh. freedom from constraint and freedom to maximize your capacity and capabilities as a human. I was reluctant to pick up his book because, uh, you know, he's a politician and politicians write books all the time and they're just uh, self-promotion, uh, but not this one. Uh, I'm not saying there is any self-promotion in it because, you know, he's a congressman and he wrote a book, uh, but Dignity in a Digital Age, Making Tech Work for All of Us is incredibly thoughtful and uh, the, the tip off to that is uh, right off the start, he has a foreword by uh, the Nobel Prize winning economist and really philosopher, Amartya Sen. Who's one of our favorites. And uh, his book, Development as Freedom, was one of the early books that I read, Nick, in uh, getting my unofficial PhD in economics here at Civic Ventures. Uh, and was really influential in changing the way I thought about uh, the economy and his whole capabilities approach, the way I thought about that term human capital, which made me think a lot more about human capabilities. And, you know, like I said, this book, there's a lot of policy in it. He makes a lot of proposals, which you would expect from a politician, but there's a lot of thinking that goes behind it. 
but also just in the broader philosophical approaches, this idea, uh, as Sen says, development is freedom. Uh, that yeah. idea of focusing on the word freedom and why it's important, uh, I think it's a, it's a really important book and I hope a lot of people go and read it. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.